Hey church, this is Eric, and for some reason we had a little bit of a recording mishap on the last teaching on the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to sit here at my desk and I'm going to re-record it for us. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer, even wherever you are, wherever you're listening, wherever you happen to be engaging this, um, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are coming before you, uh, we're coming before our God, our Father and asking that you would speak to us today, that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear you and to know you and to experience you. Lord, would you be with us today as we engage this teaching, this sermon? Lord, that you would draw us closer to you right now in this moment. That's what we're asking. We thank you for listening to us, for hearing us, and for graciously responding and moving towards us as we move our hearts towards you. All these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so as we kind of wrap up the series, and actually this is the last teaching on our Trinity series, I wanted to end by talking about the Holy Spirit. And we've covered a lot of ground in this series. I think this is our ninth overall teaching. We began just kind of explaining love as the dynamic of the universe, as the kind of central element, the background, the context. We started with that phrase, too, that we will never understand God as love until we understand God as Trinity. Then the second week, we were using the Rublev icon. We discussed the invitation of the Trinity, that we are invited into that loving relationship. Uh, we use the idea of portrait mode, this kind of concept of portrait mode, this uh, feature on most uh, camera phones that you can kind of blur out the background. But we said that the background, the context of discipleship is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Trinitarian orthodoxy, Trinitarian orthopraxy, Paul and the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. Here we are, all these teachings. And what I'd like to do this week, again... I want to look at a phrase that John uses called the spirit of truth. And this passage that he uses this phrase, the spirit of truth, actually comes immediately after the passage that we looked at last week when we looked at Jesus the Son and the oneness between Father and Son. And that was in John 14, 1 through 14. And this week, I just kind of want to roll on with it, and we're going to go verses 15 through 27, and we'll look at this relationship between Son and Spirit, specifically as John speaks to him as the Spirit of Truth. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up, you can go to John chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 27. Again, last week we were looking at, I'm sorry, John 14, 15 through 27. And um, again, last week it was John 14, 1 through 14. We're just rolling on. Um, beautiful passage that ties together the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So John 14, verse 15, Jesus says these words. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you 
and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So a few things to say about the Spirit before we kind of get going and talking about this this concept of the spirit of truth, which not only pops up here in chapter 14, but also pops up in chapter 15 and 16 as well, too. A few things to just kind of say, just some background information on the spirit. The word that we often find in the New Testament for spirit, especially right here uh, in 14, 15, when Jesus says, I'm going to send you another counselor. This word counselor, the Greek word here is parakletos, which means... Um, Counselor, but not like in the sense of a high school counselor or a guidance counselor. Um, I would say more like a counselor, a legal counsel, an advocate, helping someone in trouble with the law. Maybe another word or another way to interpret it would be a helper, an an intercessor, a strengthener, somebody kind of like who stands by you, a champion. Um, Again, don't think in the sense of an Olympic champion. Think in the sense of somebody who champions a cause or somebody who is championing for another person. So we have this initial word here, this word counselor, uh, the Greek word parakletos, a a couple ways to understand that. The Holy Spirit, maybe another way to understand it would be the Holy Spirit would be the presence of Jesus while Jesus is absent. The presence of Jesus while Jesus is absent. We can also say that Jesus' mission, his concentration, was the culmination of Israel and him. If you think about why Jesus came, Jesus came to to kind of fulfill, to, to culminate all of Israel, the whole nation of Israel story within himself. And then we could say from there, the Spirit's mission, which he gives his followers the Spirit, is the culmination of Jesus in us. This is a a paraphrase from Dale Bruner's commentary. And the reason we can think about it this way is because, again, we've said this. One of the goals for us is to become a Christian, a little Christ, so that the spirit is continually working in us, that Jesus eventually resides deeper and deeper within us. Um, Paraphrasing what John the Baptist says, that I must decrease 
so that he may increase. Another way to think about the Spirit, Jesus comes in the name of, he reveals or represents the Father. And then the Holy Spirit comes in the name of, or reveals or represents Jesus. Now, I'm hoping by now, and as we've been doing this series, and we're starting to think about the Trinity, we really have started to grasp how intertwined the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in Christianity and in our spirituality. So, with that, what do we learn about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we observe it here in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 27? And to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the garden. So, in Genesis chapter 1, 26, we know that man and women, man and woman, are created in the image of God, right? And that's what we read in Genesis 1, 26. But before in the fall in Genesis 3, we need to note a few things. And, you know, one of my absolute favorite translations of the Bible, and I, I'm like not even saying this jokingly, this is seriously, one of my favorite translations of the Bible is the Children's Storybook Bible. And I have read this Bible um, front and back to all, I think all of my children. Um, I love the graphics. I love the theology. I love how beautiful it is. Um, and <clears throat> let me read Genesis 3, 1 through 6 in just the NIV. And then I want to read a very similar, um, the way that the, this children's storybook Bible translates Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So Genesis 3, 1 through 6, the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So that's Genesis 3, 1 through 6 in the NIV. The way, and again, I think that this is just so beautiful, the way that the Children's Storybook Bible translates it is like this. Um, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's word hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste. That's all. You'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And I love this phrase. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children. God doesn't love me. So 
what we encounter here is the biggest lie, the most deadly, the greatest lie that Adam and Eve are deceived. And notice in verse 6, I think this is always really important to point out, that Adam is right there with Eve. Sometimes, you know, it's been said or it's been, you know, incredibly unfairly put on woman that she was the one responsible for the fall and the adultery and and that twisted all of humanity. But at verse 6, Adam seems to be right next to her not doing anything, very passive, not standing up, not even speaking any truth. So what I want to point out by going back to the garden is this. And let me connect it with last week. Last week, we talked about the twisted love, so to speak, how Adam and Eve's love gets twisted. It gets perverted, right? And when Jesus comes, Jesus has to undo that twisted love, right? So just as we are reconciled to Jesus with love, right? He untwists a twisted love. The adultery, that twisted love, it begins with lies, distortions of truth, twisting words, the perverting of reality. And we need someone to reestablish truth, to untwist the lies, the deception, the false pretenses that we live in. Now, one of the things we did on Sunday morning when I preached a sermon was we said that the Genesis downfall begins with lies, and we still live in this world tainted and distorted by lies. Again, as the children's storybook Bible said, The terrible lie has come into the world. It lives on every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. So we came up uh, in small groups with what I would call a list of lies that are currently told. Three lies. And they can be from culture. They can be from the world. They can even be from the church. A lot of lies get told inside the church. You know, I'll give an example of a lie that I feel that I get told often. Uh, And it was an example I gave last week. But there's an internal lie that I feel often I can tell myself or that I know is a lie, but I, again, it, it, it affects me all the same, is any time that I sin or have a perception of sin or do or some sort of wrongdoing, I believe a lie that God is ready to punish me, that he's angry with me, he's frustrated, he's upset, and any moral failure leads to God's punishment, right? So if you wanted to take a minute and pause the podcast and um, think about a couple lies, maybe, again, from culture, from our church, maybe even lies that you tell yourself, you can think about that. Or just listen on because here's my list of lies that I came up with and we talked about. Um, How about the lie of consumerism? This is probably the most predominant lie that we live in, in the American West where we believe the lie and you can see this and, and we really see this so prevalent that possessions will lead you to fulfillment, right? If I just have a bit more, then I'll be content. 
the lie of consumerism. How about the lie of pornography is that pornography always offers intimacy without commitment, right? Intimacy without commitment. And we all know that there is no way that you can have any sort of intimacy without deep level of commitment. It's a lie. Anxiety is the lie that God cannot be trusted with the future. God doesn't know what he's doing. Imagine all the people who are anxious currently in this world because they have no hope, because they have no reality that God can, in fact, be trusted with the future, right? Again, anxiety is a lie that God cannot be trusted with the future. How about the lie of multitasking? The lie of multitasking would tell you that you are omnipresent, that you can be in multiple places at once, just like God. Instead of just simply living to your limitations and doing one thing at a time. The lie of greed. Greed is a lie in which you have everything you need and you just want a little bit more, right? Having everything you need and you just want more. Incidentally, greed is one of the primary manifestations of the garden, right? Adam and Eve, everything they need and they're not content, they want more. They want that other tree that they're not allowed to have. They're not content having all that God has given them. The lie that we get sold with media is that what I consume has no effect on me. What I consume has no effect on me. It's a lie. If you spend all of your time watching violent, um, to say violent films and think that that's not going to affect you, you're, you're delusional. We're delusional to think that, right? If we spend all of our time consuming um, social media, right? In which people are projecting their best selves and think to ourselves that that's not going to have any effect on us. Again, we're lying. We're just believing the lie. The lie of drugs and alcohol would simply a way to uh, phrase that is that you are using blank, whatever it would be, alcohol, prescription drugs, marijuana, whatever you choose to use, you are using that to do for you what the Holy Spirit should be doing in your life, right? You are not content with your mental state. You are not content with your spirit. You are not content with your emotions. So you use something else to do for you what the Holy Spirit should be doing and working in your life. Social media is the lie as we project false images and false selves to the world, showing how wonderful things are, showing how beautiful our lives are, how much we have it together, how great we are. Or sometimes people project this in the opposite way is they project how terrible things are for them, how hard things are for them, how difficult things are for them, because they want attention and pity, right? There's the lie of pluralism, which is that there are many ways to God, that you can kind of find your own path and, and choose your own spirituality, and whatever you choose will eventually lead you to God. There's the current lie that most American Christians or a lot of Western Christians live in is the lie of moralistic therapeutic deism, that um, if you take those words in reverse, deism, there is some sort of a, a God, a being, 
out there. Um, he generally exists to make you feel good about yourself, um, to kind of make you happy, to, to give you therapy. And as long as you're a generally moral person, you're all good. And most people live with that kind of general lie about the Christian nature, about who God is. So again, just as Jesus came to untwist our twisted love that we twisted in the garden, just as Jesus came to untwist our twisted love, the Holy Spirit comes to untwist our twisted lies to reveal truth. Dale Bruner says this in his commentary. He says that among all of John's expressions that include truth, none is as common as the spirit of truth. John 14, 17, John 15, 26, John 16, 13, and 1 John 4, 6. He says this expression is not found elsewhere in the New Testament. John felt that it was very necessary to link together. What the Holy Spirit does, the counselor, the helper, the one who comes alongside us with the truth. Now, let me say one other thing. And one of the reasons we did this um, at our church in groups is because we need community with the Holy Spirit to help us discern truth. We need community <clears throat> with the Holy Spirit to help us discern truth. In John chapter 14, verse 17, we have this little phrase that John uses here. And he says that, he says, you know him, right? You know the Holy Spirit, for he lives with you and will be in you. Um, a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Trinitarian orthopraxy, uh, one of the things we discussed with Trinitarian orthopraxy is we discussed, how do you read the Bible in a Trinitarian fashion, right? How do you read the Bible in, in more of kind of a pluralistic manner? And we discussed as you're reading the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to substitute uh, when you see the word you or me, the singulars, the things that kind of point back to ourselves, it's helpful to substitute y'all or, or yous or ye or you guys um, for the word you. So the you here that Jesus is using when he's speaking to his disciples, the promised you that, that the Holy Spirit lives in you and will be in you is plural. Jesus is speaking to his group of disciples. Again, Bruner in his commentary, he says, every explicit reference to the spirit or to the paraclete in the discipleship sermons in particular and in John's gospel in general refers to the gift of the spirit given to the community. He continues on and he says, the moral is get thee to church on time. Do not forsake the assembly of believers, Hebrews 10.25. Be a church man or church woman, a loyal member of the local and thus universal fellowship of believers, first of all. And then he closes by saying this. He says, for there the spirit of truth makes his special home on earth. And again, we have to think about this, that if the lie manifested itself in community with Adam and Eve, we will need the community empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the spirit of truth to untwist the lies, to undo the deception, to experience the truth 
that the Holy Spirit comes to bring. Because we see what happens when one person in a community claims to be the sole purveyor of truth. It's called a cult. We need the community to experience the spirit of truth. I think that this is true with marriage relationships. I think that this is often true with parenting. I think that this is true pretty much anywhere. Any two followers of Jesus are pursuing a Christian life, a life of discipleship guided by the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus when absent, right? One last note too on this is why from day one, I've always um, had discussion time at some level incorporated in our sermon time because there should not be just one person standing up in front saying, I am the sole purveyor of truth and here is what you are to believe, know, have, here it is. I think that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, works best when it's in community. Lastly, I would say that truth is everything we need. Um, John 14, 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. John 14, 26. Now, when we read this passage and we see that thing that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us all things, do we learn say, cellular biology from the Holy Spirit? Do we learn third century Roman linguistics or the physics behind hitting a curveball as if our minds kind of somehow become Google search engines? Again, Bruner in his commentary talks about that everything you need to know to be a Christian disciple in this world can be translated like this. He says, Jesus is saying that the most explicit and fullest way the Spirit will teach us everything we ever need to know is by reminding us of everything Jesus ever said. We learn everything we need to know now by being reminded of everything Jesus said then. And this is what the Spirit of Truth does, is as we welcome and open the Spirit of Truth, it descends into a community. It untwists the twisted truth, the lie that's on every human heart, by teaching us and reminding us of everything Jesus said and did. And I cannot think of more anything more important than what the Spirit of Truth can do, is again, just point us back to Jesus and say, look at Jesus, everything is there. So... That's the last sermon on the Trinity. Let me close in a benediction, in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may my brothers and sisters be wrapped in the incredible, the truth, the love, the grace, the mercy, the invitation of the Holy Spirit as they go about their days. All these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.